the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Hello and welcome to The Situation Report. This is the show where we do our best every single week to give you the information and perspectives you need to navigate an ever-changing culture. My name is Jeremy Stolnecker here with Chad Robichaux. And today we're going to talk about something that we hear a lot about but may not fully understand. The topic in front of us today is the topic of populism or the populist movement in our country and really as we'll see today with our guest around the world. Our guest today is someone who spends a lot of time thinking and talking about this. Very glad to have on with us Matthew Termant. Matthew, first of all, thank you so much for spending some time with us today. I know you're super busy. You're all over the place, uh, but taking some time for us. Thank you for doing it. No, my pleasure. You guys are. Uh, you guys have a great show, so happy to be part of it. And you had great guests. I, I, I looked through your guest list. It's like 70 episodes. I think I know 60 of your guests, and 20 of them are my close friends. So. Yeah, we've uh, we've been super blessed. Um, it's it's pretty incredible. Once you get into the right circle, you meet a lot of incredible people who are doing amazing work, and uh, and you're one of those people. Uh, and, and to that end, uh, I looked through your background and your bio, and you've been involved in so much. So instead of trying to outline that, <laughs> here's the first question: uh, Give us your background a little bit. It, um, the key kind of bio pieces that you'd like to share. And then if you can transition from that into how you got involved with elections and speaking on populism and kind of what you're involved in right now. Sure. Uh, yeah, it's been a circuitous, uh, long, long, strange trip to uh, paraphrase the Grateful Dead. Uh, I, uh, I joined the movement. I joined sort of political activism and, and the battle of ideas and the culture wars uh, about 10 years ago after being on Wall Street, but it was kind of in the blood because my father was a anti-communist dissident and writer in Poland that came oh. to the States in the 60s and fought the commies here. He used to say he fought the Nazis in Poland in the 30s and 40s and the communists in the 40s, 50s and 60s, and then mm -hmm. the New York liberals in the 60s, 70s and 80s. He said <laughs> they were all pretty similar. It was just yeah. how far along they had built their gulags and they were all kind of skating or swimming down the same uh, swim lane. Sure. Uh, so it was kind of in the blood. He founded a conservative uh, think tank called the Rockford Institute and a magazine called Chronicles of Culture, now Chronicles. So I sort of grew up with this sort of intellectual pedigree, but I grew up uh, after he died in New York City and went to public school and went to Wall Street after college at University of Chicago, but was always politically active. And even when I was on a trading desk, I was always sort of a political intel guy and, and very deeply involved. Uh, and then uh, in 2011-12, I left Wall Street and I started getting super involved in, uh, in, in this stuff directly uh, with uh, different groups on the U.S. side. Uh, group in Chicago called Open the Books, uh, who I'm going to introduce you guys to. Adam, the guy who founded it, would be an amazing, amazing guest for you guys to have. Yeah. Uh, awesome. This whole thing is to forensic audit the public sector through transparency. And wow. so I fell in love with that. I'm a data guy at heart. And then uh, James O'Keefe and I were close friends, uh, even when I was still on Wall Street. We'd met after he'd done Acorn uh, in New York at a Manhattan Institute event. And I helped him network a little bit when he was still in New Jersey. And, uh, and then when I joined the movement, I joined his board. And this was when Project Veritas was 
less than 10 people, seven, eight people and uh, worked on some projects with him and got very, very tightly aligned with his mission and helping him grow Project Veritas. Uh, and now it's, you know, 70 people yeah. and obviously in the news a lot. Not yeah. much I can say about recent news yeah. headlines uh, as per our giant army of kicking lawyers. Uh, <laughs> but it's, uh, you know, as Bannon, one of my mentors would say, uh, we're over the target and thus we are an enemy of the state. Mm. Uh, and personally, I also got involved, very involved in Europe uh, with my father's history as a Pole and very, uh, very involved. I uh, started going to Poland. I got citizenship and I got just super deeply involved in the Polish political debate and called out the previous government for their corruption, made no friends, uh, really, they didn't really like me at all. I got citizenship before I got vocally aggressive. So that was probably the smartest thing I've ever done. So you're you're making no friends all over the world. So I always always say, if you want more friends in this town, get a dog. uh, I got enough friends and I got a dog. So, uh, so at this point, you know, I'm, I'm 40. I've been in a bunch of different circles and, uh, I, I don't really, I'm, I'm not looking for more friends. I'm looking to, you know, help win in the battle of ideas and the culture war yeah. and fight the corruption and the and the systemic rot in our society that the left has wrought as they have wrought in every other society they gain yeah. a foothold in. Uh, so I'm a, I'm a sort of like a, a Breitbart, Andrew Breitbart style. I used to write for Breitbart, but uh, Andrew Breitbart style, kind of happy, aggressive warrior. And uh, mm-hmm. if you check my Twitter, which is severely shadow banned, thanks to us at Project Veritas, discovering shadow banning in 2018, right. I watched my uh, engagement fall off a cliff. Uh, I, uh, I have a pretty big mouth and I call. I was just blocked today uh, by the former head of the Polish Central Bank because I reminded people about his corruption, what he was caught on tape doing, a guy named Marek Belka. So I, uh, I might have been a little colorful in my language, but, you know, the truth's so. So this, this episode's going to have a hard time getting out there, is what you're telling me. It's going to be shadow banned everywhere. Well, we'll do our best, though. We'll push through. No, it, it gets that. You know what I find is that, you know, truth, like we were talking before about, you know, uh, people finding each other in circles, good people find each other, and truth percolates to the top. That's right. Uh, you know, as much as they want to coerce narratives, uh, the truth will find a way because people are deterministic uh, and just being a human being is about engaging others. And we just have an innate bullshit meter. So yeah, sure, the stupidest among us who are leftists, uh, their bullshit meters, you know, you can feed them whatever. They'll just take it hook, line and sinker. Mm. Uh, they are, they've replaced religion and faith and higher, higher morality and frameworks uh, with the state and their movements. And so they're cultists about it. But we are skeptics because we don't believe, we believe in original sin and we believe that uh, humans need to uh, be fact checked. And yep. so we do have good meters yep. on these things. So yep. I do think that the stuff gets out there that's one good. way or the other. Yeah, that's good. What I'm most encouraged about is hearing that uh, the problems you're talking about are not only here in America. <laughs> Everywhere. Everywhere. I know we're going to talk about a lot of places and elections, but yeah, I mean, that, that's the thing. There's been a convergence last, I'd say, 25, 30 years. And really the advent of the Internet in the 90s uh, accelerated this convergence where the way information is shared uh, and brought to this forefront for people to consume, uh, the barriers to entry are lower than ever thanks to technology. I mean, this is a another information revolution very akin to uh, uh, the printing press. 
uh, in the 15th century and what that did for knowledge, uh, as well as overturning the established order. I mean, they overturned the monarchies then. Well, now we have our monarchies, but they're technocratic monarchies. They're in supranational governance and a panoply of alphabet soup organizations like yeah. the UN and the uh, WTO and the WHO and the uh, the IMF and the, the World Bank and the European Central Bank and the, the BOJ in Japan and the Bank of China. They're all technocrats that try and control human life uh, through these measures and levers. And of course, it's a technocratic elite that wants to control them. And it's the same mm. sort of establishment elite that Bannon rails against, I think, rather accurately. And that's why we're having a populist reactionary moment in the last 10, 12 years. And it's not coincidental. It comes after 2008 when the world blew up and wages stagnated and the establishment was bailed out. Uh, so all these things are linked. Yeah. On, on the subject of populism, can you give us an overview of like the circumstances that developed to create a populist movement, particularly we look at you know 2016. What was the callus of the populist movement that brought in a political outsider like Donald Trump into yeah. the White House? So again, these are these are sort of dynamics that have been percolating. I, I really do bring it back to uh, uh, 2000, 2008, nine uh, in the U.S. Uh, with the investment banks and the financial sector. The financial sector has been always capable of. Uh, of rent seeking and regulatory capture more than any other because that's where the money is. How do you buy politicians with the currency of capital so that gets them reelected and keeps them in political power? You go even further back and the breakdown of Glass-Steagall, the, uh, the, the, the post-depressionary regulation that separated highly levered investment banks and low levered commercial banks where uh, just consumers' deposits were held. You could not gamble and lever up your bets on a commercial bank, a consumer bank balance sheet. That's what investment banking was for, uh, was taking those risks. And those risks are valid risks to take. That's how mortgages uh, were reduced uh, starting in the 70s and 80s by, uh, by breaking down the risk and tranching out uh, the, the pools of mortgages to investors uh, in fixed income securities. It brought down the cost of mortgaging uh, your homes uh, down for, for ordinary Americans in the developed world. It was a very valid innovation that came out of investment banks. So there's a, a place in society for taking risk and using leverage. Uh, but when they broke down in the, in the 90s, uh, those, that regulatory division that was a prudent one uh, that came again out of an excessive period in the 20s and into the 30s with the depression uh when they when when it was uh it was actually under bill clinton and it was two uh it was two incredible cronies robert rubin uh, mm. and larry summers uh his chief economics guys uh who were both investment banking uh friends of investment banking bob rubin became uh, chairman of Citigroup. uh they pushed for it and that allowed the leverage uh, to really accelerate when and we saw this housing crisis, we saw social engineering and the social imperative, Fannie and Freddie uh, with ninja loans. There was no economic rationale and risk management applied. It was just get everybody in a house. By the way, this goes back to Andrew Cuomo when he was uh, head mm -hmm. of HUD uh, under Bill Clinton. He was pushing this wow. hard uh, to lever up the, uh, the sovereign balance sheets of the uh, of the government-sponsored enterprises, Fannie and Freddie, which are essentially uh, a default backed by the sovereign. That means the country, which means us, the taxpayer. Yeah. Uh, and so it was just an incredible misallocation of risk by, due to political considerations by the, by the technocratic elite who were motivated by their own power. They would talk about social justice, but it was if we get everyone in a house, we're gonna win elections forever. And so then the, the, you had to pay the piper in 2008 uh, and then that was contagious around the world. The German banks were doing the same thing in Southern Europe, uh, uh, Fran uh, Southern France, Spain, Portugal, Italy, uh, Greece, uh, we call them the pigs, 
the economies that were very low growth and very, very uh, not really stable, not highly industrious, high output. And they were getting homes at the uh, and also similar mortgage considerations as we were seeing in Florida and Nevada that were growing in excess of what the market would bear rationally. Uh, and so then you see the bailouts. And that's what I think was really catalyzed the acceleration of populism was the banking bailouts, big auto and the unions, uh, the, the 2009, the ARRA, the American Re Recovery and Reinvestment Act, which was the Obama, first Obama stimulus. Gary Johnson, who I like personally, but would never vote for, friend, we're friendly. Uh, he did say this great thing where he said that his dog created more shovel-ready jobs than that <laughs> you know, trillion-dollar stimulus. And I think that was true. O'Keefe did a great uh, video expose, uh, Earth Supply and Renewal, where he went undercover to unions and said, we're getting, we can get all the stimulus money from the feds if we just you know, create a, a program where we dig up holes and we fill them back in. And that's literally what the money went to, is boondoggles like this. And so the waste and the abuse and Terry McAuliffe getting rich off green energy uh, in the same sort of programs, uh, people's eyes were, uh, were, were opened up to this because what was happening at the same time, their wages stagnated. Uh, so everyone got bailed out except the working class and middle class American who saw wages stagnate, cost of education go up, cost of everything go up. Uh, and so that really started to, uh, to set the stage. And yet at the same time, the contagion in, in Europe in 10, 2010, 11, 12, you had the EU getting more and more unaccountable uh, to the voters, ignoring referenda and the results of them. If they didn't get the result they wanted, they just keep holding them till they got what they wanted frequently in low turnout scenarios, like they would hold a, the redux of, a, of an election or a, a referendum uh, during Christmas when nobody would show up. Right. So people started being wise to the games and the Brits, uh, obviously with Brexit, uh, were a huge inflection. This was the first time in 50 years that the EU went from a, a, a accelerating, consistently agglomerating uh, federalized project, more and more countries coming on to losing one. And so it's kind of like a Ponzi scheme. And when Britain uh, left, you can see that the House of Cards is very, very delicate. And so they've been stimulating like crazy. Even where we've eased our, uh, our QE programs, quantitative easing and bond buying, uh, they have not. They've got a LTRO, long-term refinancing operation, where they have to keep buying uh, lest the German banks go under. And the German banks are the economic driver of the European Union project. They've kept countries like Greece and to some a lesser degree, Italy as economic vassal states where their freely elected sovereigns are deposed uh, by technocratic fiat from groups like the Troika, which was the European Union uh, through the uh, 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 and the ECB and then the uh, the IMF. So these three groups uh, the, uh, forced uh, leaders of Greece and Italy out because they weren't friendly enough uh, to mm -hmm. the agenda of the EU to, quote unquote, restabilize and force austerity, uh, as in cut jobs, cut wages of the public sector, cut pensions uh, of the people so that the German banks can stay solvent. Uh, and carry this sovereign debt and, and uh, corporate debt and mortgage debt on their balance sheets at par at, at fully uh, realized valuations, even though they were essentially worthless. Uh, so people got fed up. And you saw at the same time Central Europe, uh, uh, Poland and Hungary, migrants. Uh, you know, Angela Merkel wanted to import a cheap labor force. But by way of Central Europe, uh, Central Europe said no. They were already experienced with far off Mandarin rule after Moscow had oppressed them for the previous 45 right, years right. post Yalta. 
Uh, and they were happy to come into the EU for the convergence on Western living standards. Many of them did not adopt uh, the euro, which was very fortuitous to them. Uh, their elite, their lefty elite, who is selling their sovereignty, uh, their border sovereignty, their economic sovereignty, for cash and bags to Berlin and Brussels, uh, they were looking to try and get an exchange rate mechanism, get the euro on. It would be a more liquid currency for them to uh, exchange their plunder in the post-communist periods in their countries. Uh, but Hungary still has the foreign, Poland still has the Zloty, uh, Czech Karun, the Czech crown, Slovak crown. So they've been very fortuitous in that. But they saw in 13, 14, 15, with the migrant crisis starting to accelerate through Europe, that they were going to be forced to take hostile third world Islamists from places where their societies do not mesh with mostly the Catholic society of Central Europe. Uh, and again, they were hard for, fought to win their freedom back and win the right to worship as they see fit. Uh, they were not they were having none of it. So you saw them move to the right first in Hungary with Viktor Orban uh, and then his mandate renewed. And then in Poland with law and justice and the first ever unilateral mandate to govern with the with the the, the conservative uh, right wing party uh, where there was no coalition they had to build with any centrist and leftist parties. Uh, so these were, you know, stark, uh, stark moments where uh, it was validated that there's a populist movement underfoot and Trump came in on these same tailwinds. And so did Bolsonaro, uh, you know, less than 12, 12 months later. Uh, and Le Pen, a year later in 18, gets the second round against Macron and gets uh, 35 percent. You know, lefty academic lefty France, which was the academic driver of the EU, is seeing right. a hard right Euroscepticist, right. Uh, Euroskeptic, uh, get a third and get to the second round. Uh, and so I think these trends are set and they're going to continue. Nothing goes straight up. Nothing goes straight down. The small victories uh, like in Germany uh, that the establishment and the Eurocentrists have had in Europe in the previous two or three years, uh, say they run out in The Economist and the FT and The Atlantic and all the places where Anne Applebaum spews her bilious drivel. Uh, they, uh, they, oh, we've beaten back populism. No, you haven't. This is, you know, a dead cat bounce. It's ebbs and flows. And I think now we're at this moment that we have half a dozen elections worldwide that are going to, I think, reaffirm the, the greater trend, which is populism. It's Brazil and Bolsonaro. It's Chile right now. Hopefully the, uh, the the conservative will win in Chile. They're going to a runoff in uh, December 19th. Uh, it's, it's Orban running for re-election uh, in Fidesz in Hungary in April. It's France with Eric Zemmer, who is, you know, the, one of the biggest strengths he has is he's not Le Pen. Uh, Le Pen was pretty unpalatable to many in French society, and Zemmer is not. He's an intellectual that kind of crosses divides. Uh, and then uh, uh, Brazil in September, our midterms. And I actually yeah. think in Germany, you're going to see another election as, as well. They just had one, and it's a, a ridiculous coalition that I think, I contend, will not last through Q1. I think they'll have to have elections again in Germany, which will be interesting. Many of our veterans feel they need to fight their battles alone. This self-isolation has led to the staggering statistic of more than 20 veterans taking their lives every day. The mission of Mighty Oaks is to eradicate the veteran suicide epidemic and help our warriors change their legacies. We've been able to help over 4,000 veterans and first responders by equipping them with the tools they need to live the lives they were created to live. Our faith-based, peer-to-peer approach has one of the highest success rates of any program available today, offering hope and understanding to those who need it most. By aligning their lives to biblical principles, these men and women are able to lead their families, 
their communities, and our nation. It's your generosity that can make a difference in the lives of the men and women who have fought for our country and our freedoms. Now that they're home, don't let them fight alone. Learn more at MightyOaksPrograms.org. When we, um, we look at populism, we talk about populism. The media, largely, at least in the United States, controls the narrative on these things, right? And so the media, that is the mainstream media, not, not Breitbart News and other outlets, but the mainstream media controls the narrative. And the narrative seems to be, at least as it relates to populism, that this is a mob and this is mob rule. You know, we have been called deplorables, et cetera, et cetera. Um, two things. One, can you give kind of a, a simple working definition of populism or the populist movement? And the second thing is, do you think that the populist movement can actually continue? I know you said it will, but can it in the face of a media that is controlling the narrative? Yes, I think the media. So Pew does uh, studies every few years, like these really wide ranging studies of trust in institutions. And in the last few cycles, they've shown that the media has a lower trust, the mainstream media, the network media, right. the, uh, the broadsheet uh, papers of record, like the Washington Post, and New York Times, news weeklies, uh, you know, what we've all up until the internet just called the media. Right, now, sure. you know, we've differentiated with the uh, with sort of the mainstream versus the alternative because the barriers to entry have been broken down. But the mainstream media has lower trust. I think the last couple of years ago or so was 11 percent versus Congress, which wow. has 16 percent. <laughs> so you mean to tell me that politicians who we know definitively lie because that's their job. Their job right. is to get you to vote for them. So they try and tell everybody what they want to hear. So definitionally, that cohort that is defined as professional liars has a higher rating of trust than that cohort that historically was the fourth estate that was meant to tell you the news, right. what's new, what's true, report the news, like Dragnet, you know, just the facts, man. Uh, their level of trust, they know that the editorialization has been going on. The media, my father wrote an essay in 1975 for the American thinker, I think, or American scholar, called the Media Shangri-La, where uh, everybody's free, but some are freer than others. And he compared mm -hmm. the American media and the society they were trying to build with what he was dealing with under communism, where Pravda would tell you record crop yields every year, but meanwhile, you were starving. So who do you believe, right. Pravda or your rumbling right. belly? Right. Uh, and so, you know, already he was diagnosing, diagnosing this in the 70s uh, uh, during uh, Watergate and the way the media spun that. Uh, that they had a serious political agenda, uh, that they were uh, somewhat nihilistic, but certainly utopianistic, uh, and they were going to deliver so social justice by hook or by crook, coercively, much like the communists did, much like the Bolsheviks did. Uh, and so the, the trust in, in the media is very, very low. So when, when you say the media is defining the narrative, I think that more than half the country rolls their eyes when you know that new narrative is set. We knew yeah. that the Steele dossier was nonsense right. uh, because we're not idiots. The sheep and the <laughs> right. cultists uh, who, you know, pull the lever left, uh, who, you know, my father used to say that uh, conservatism is a philosophy of reason and liberalism in terms of the, uh, the modern progressivism is a philosophy of conscience. What mm. feels good is good. How mm. great would it be if we could all just, you know, a chicken in every pot? Well, right. the laws of economics, which are scientific and immutable, it's just how do you allocate resources, suggest that that's not possible. And yeah. conservatives, after thousands of years of the human condition and deferring to a higher moral framework than our own egos, 
right. with the Judeo-Christian ethos, right. uh, recognize that some things are just unfair, that original sin exists, that not everybody's going to be your friend and going to treat you right. Uh, and the, the liberal left says, well, no, we can deliver social justice because we are the, we are the anoint, anointed and endowed. We are the smartest, most educated. Populism is a rejection of that mentality. Mm, that's that's a Harvard fact that Bill Buckley said it great. And that Bill Buckley was as establishment as it gets here at Greenwich, Connecticut, sailor, National Review founder, but he was a populist philosophically. And he said brilliantly, I would rather take the first hundred names of the Boston phone book than the Harvard faculty lounge. Because <laughs> when you have the basic consideration of putting food on the table for your families or help uh, shoveling your driveway, that's a common sense that when you are in the yeah. ivory tower cocoon and the academy or the media uh, you know, news desk of the New York Times in uh, Midtown on 8th Avenue, you don't get that. You're yeah, cocoon. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you lose those considerations. So the populist revolution we're seeing is once the people, the masses, the silent majority, what the uh, what the elites in New York and uh, you know D.C. and San Fran and Boston would refer to as flyover country, the unwashed masses. Yes, yeah, right. Uh, they uh, you know they they now understand the, the the people know more than ever that those elites are working against them. That their that their interests are not the same. The Democrats stayed in power because there was a whole class of union. FDR, Rust Belt Democrats who believe in the New Deal, who believe that the richest country in the history of the world that was made wealthy by thrift, industry, good values, and a constitution that protected private property, that allowed free speech, free assembly, and the right, right. to defend oneself, uh, that you know these were the, secure, the securing mechanisms that allowed wealth creation and freedom really does. Uh, they believe that the government did have a role to play and the New Deal was a great thing. And so for 50 years, they were this union Rust Belt uh, Dem voting cohort. But as Josh Mandel, who I know you guys have on, he's one of my best friends. I'm, I'm volunteering to advise his campaign mm. all the time in Ohio against this, you know, big tech yeah. sleeper cell construct fraud, J.D. Vance. Also uh, former Marine. So good, yeah. good man. <laughs> former two-tour, two-tour, uh, Ann Barr. I mean, this right. guy. He's a fighter. I, I've yeah. known him since he was treasurer in Ohio, and he was he was going to war with Kasich over yeah, one of my it. issues, which yeah. is uh, fiscal uh, fiscal transparency yeah. and, and making government spending transparent. So, I mean, uh, you know, he uh, he said this on Fox the other day. He said, you know, the Democrats in Ohio, most of the Democrats in Ohio, this is why it's a, a red state. They go hunting on the weekends. They go to church. Uh, they stand for the flag. They think the cops are the good guys. Right. You know, so right. the Democratic Party has changed. And these people that are the backbone of the American working and middle class in so many states that voted Dem for so long but are becoming purple or red now, uh, voter fraud notwithstanding, in places like yeah, Michigan, sure. Pennsylvania, and, uh, and Wisconsin, uh, they uh, they didn't leave the Democratic Party. The Democratic Party yeah. left them. Right. And that's what we're seeing. And that's all part of the populist revolution we're seeing. So the left, of course, wants to make, and the elite establishment left wants to make populism this dirty word. Uh, well, of course they do. Because when the people rise up, and they find that they have something in common, commonality, and they stand for the same thing, things like the American flag uh, and our constitution. The establishment left living in the ivory tower and highly cocooned, you know, my father called them uh, limousine liberals and caviar communists, workers of the world unite as they yelled at their chauffeur or their waiter or their maid. <laughs> right, right, right. Uh, you know, you, you read Tom Wolfe, Malmiring the Flat Catchers, and uh, about, you know, when, uh, uh, what's his name uh, on Park Avenue had the Black Panthers over in his penthouse. Yeah. And it's, you know, it's, it's this level of cartoonishness. While the left should and the establishment elite should be afraid, and of course they're trying to conflate populism with ethno nationalism, which it has nothing to do with. 
One of the beauties of the American military is it is a nationalist organ that does not see race, creed, religion, yeah. ethnicity. It is all about when you're in a trench with your brother, you don't give a what color his skin is. Right. You guys have each other's back because your backs depend on it. Yeah, that's right. And that's part of part of America. Well, the beauty of America. That's good. But with the, I mean, the populism to me is what what the people want, right? It's a it's a you know manifestation of what the people want. So why is there? a war on populism. What, what's the heart behind it? What's the motivation? Is it just based on a global trade model, uh, those who are going to profit from the system they created, or does it go deeper than that? Like that, what's the motivation? It's all of it. You know, the, the when, you know, I, I'm reminded of the, uh, of the referendum in, I think it was 2004, Lisbon referendum in uh, EU uh, for Irish ascension. And it was originally voted down and then they just kept holding it till it was voted in. And, the elites use these technocratic levers in politics, policy. You create the revolving door with think tanks. Anne Applebaum's one of my favorite examples. Her and her husband, Radek Sikorski, he was the uh, former foreign minister of Poland, and then he got turfed out for uh, for financial scandal and being caught on tape, uh, you know, talking talking his truth, which was not, which was quite <laughs> at odds with what people wanted or expected. Right. Uh, and here she is. She goes from you know her dream of being a first lady of Poland to, okay, well, he gets turfed out and their establishment party of Eurocentric elites gets turfed out. Then she goes to uh, back to the Washington Post and the Atlantic and the think tanks like Legatum in London, they get sinecures, the Atlantic Council. And so they're trying to break down our birthright, which is our sovereign nation states, for that comes from the 1648 Treaty of Westphalia, the, the concept of Westphalian sovereignty. Europe was made great by Westphalian sovereignty when the countries realized, well, we have our own cultures and nation states, and we need to come up with diplomatic mechanisms that they hashed out in 1815 in the Congress of Vienna uh, to air our sovereign grievances. Uh, but in and, and Europe, obviously there was war, there was there were skirmishes over territory and, and divergent in interests and political power struggles, but the com competition in Europe after the Westphalian sovereign uh, framework went into effect, much like American federalism in our 50, uh, 50 state laboratories uh, that we each have state sovereignty, uh, this works, this competition works, and it also creates more accountable systems of electoral politics mm -hmm. that go down to the base, and they're accountable through elections and through turnover based on popular will. Well, that's the biggest threat ever to the establishment, is popular will getting expressed in honest elections, right. where their right. mandates can be taken away from them. So what do they do? They try and create systems and frameworks and institutions like the United Nations that can supersede the will of sovereign mm. nation states. Mm. And the people who run these, I call them the technocratic elite, they are not accountable to anybody but themselves. They are self-reinforcing cabal of hyper-educated, but educated in the same uh, same non-diverse frameworks of thought, right. the Harvard right. Faculty Lounge, Johns Hopkins School of Advanced International Study, SAIS, <laughs> right. uh, Georgetown, uh, Oxford. It's, you know, they all, there's no diversity of thought. They all think the same thing and they agree. And now they've gotten to the point because they're threatened that they have to censor uh, even further divergent viewpoints and diversity of viewpoints. So now it's even more self-reinforcing. And that's why their, their ultimate battle plan is to use public health, and the the, the 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 new scarlet letter in our uh, in our intersectional society, which is racism, that you're anti this uh, homophobia, 
uh, anti-black, anti-Muslim, anti-whatever. Again, divide along identity political divisions yeah. because yeah. the scariest thing to them is Martin Luther King Jr.'s dream that everybody's judged by a content of their character. If you're judged by the content of your character, then it's a lot tougher to divide people because everybody is competing <laughs> right. on ideas. Right. Everyone's an individual if it's content of character and they can never move you into interest groups that easily that they can then control when it comes time for elections or funding their supranational governance organizations. Yeah. So they're very threatened by this populist popular movement uh, and thus they're smearing us uh, as racists and bigots and neo-Nazis. I'm a Jew. I got called an anti-Semite by the Washington Post because I wrote about Apple <laughs> back in 2016. And they didn't mention my name in this half-page editorial mm. saying Trump normalizes anti-Semitic bigotry because you'd find out that I'm on the board of Holocaust remembrance organizations, that my father's entire family was killed in the Holocaust, uh, that, you know, I'm not, I've written articles about, you know, being Jewish as a conservative and being in Poland. So it's not like I, I, I come across, if you do any delving into who I am and what I write about or think about, that this is just some, you know, crutch I use to fight yeah. them. This is something I give a lot of thought to. And I write about and I think about and I explain to others about. And so they have to marginalize somebody like me, just as if they, they have to marginalize any of our returning vets who are heroes as, you know, oh, they, they can't think because they have PTSD. Right. So we have to think for them and we have to put them into a box and uh, oh, by the way, they've been militarized, so they're probably going to join militias and kidnap Gretchen <laughs> Whitmer, which was an FBI plot. Right. So, I mean, they're at war with the truth. They're at war with yeah. all of us because we are the mechanism that will hold them accountable. And on some level, they know that. So they're yeah. going to continue to smear us. And you know what? As Bannon says, that means we're over the target and, you know, embrace it, own it. Yeah. If you want more friends, get a dog. I was lecturing in Hungary. And I said to a bunch of these young Hungarian activists, I said, don't do this if you don't want to make enemies or if you yeah, just want right. to make friends. If you want to go, if you want to go to the wine and cheese soirees, that's what they do. You know, we need to take scalps. That's why I love working with O'Keefe. Because uh, Project Veritas takes scalps. Yeah. Uh, Bannon takes scalps. Uh, and that's what we need to do. We had, uh, enough of this, you know, uh, uh, conservative movement that was filled with gentlemen philosophers. Screw that. We've got to take scalps. Because they're going to put us in gulags if we don't. So last question then, um, look into your crystal ball sitting right there on your desk, because I know you have one. <laughs> what happens next year in the midterms? Um, I think for a lot of people, the, the, the firewall between conservatives and gulags, between you know, freedom and uh, despotism is the midterm elections. Now that may be an oversimplification, but uh, how do you see that unfolding? What does that look like? Well, there's two things that I always like to say because I'm a bit of a cynic, but my cynicism is 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 based on the reality of my quote unquote lived experience to use our lefty <laughs> right. uh, terminology. You're very uh, woke, which enough, I appreciate. That's a very woke statement. That's wrong. very good. <laughs> I'm old enough to remember when last election was the most important election of our lifetime. Right. And then sure. the election before that was the most sure. election of our important election of our, our lifetime. So my view is it's always the most important election of our lifetime because it's always about the present and the future. Uh, we have to learn from the past to re to you know reform uh, the best we can our present and make a better future. I'm also old enough to remember, and I marched in a uh, in a in a, in a counter protest in uh, 2000 when I was at school U Chicago. I went downtown Chicago uh, in 2000. This is when we uh, when we invaded uh, uh, Iraq uh, in what was it 2002? I think 2003. 2003. Yeah. And so I was old. I'm old enough to remember when there were signs everywhere. Bush is literally Hitler. So, you know, Trump is literally Hitler. You know, Jim Jordan is literally Hitler. I'm literally Hitler. You know, the reductio added clarum does not carry much weight mm. with me because if everyone's Hitler, if everyone's yeah. a racist, right. if everyone's a neo-Nazi, then no one is. And so I, I did a counter protest with a bunch of my uh, 
my 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 bros in New Chicago where we held up signs where yes you know we stand with the with the military we stand with the U.S. government uh, you know against all these you know this is sort of pre Antifa mainstreaming it was just a bunch of Chicago style soy boys uh, marching <laughs> on Michigan Avenue and it was me and like all my frat brothers right. so we, we we were ready for what goes on and like we were outnumbered like a thousand to one but you know they were kind of weak weak knee right. uh, we, it we wasn't really fair odds that thousand yeah, one fair, but uh uh but you know this election i think that the midterms are going to be it's going to be a redux of 2010 with the tea party wave and for the same reasons in 2009 obama came in and he i knew obama so i got a fight with obama in 99 uh he was a university of chicago law lecturer he came to my dorm to recruit community activists i got like a shouting match with him and oh. i knew that day, and I'd seen him around over the few other few years. Saw him at some lectures. He was a two, at that point. He was in his second uh, term as a Illinois state senator, and I uh, knew that he'd be. You know, I remember calling my mother after this argument I had with him. I said, "Oh man, I just met a, a radical activist who uh, who we're going to be hearing from." And mm. then I didn't even say her name. And then in 2004, when he gives that uh, keynote at the Dem convention that he parlayed into a 2006 Illinois Senate seat. Uh, I called my mother and I said, oh, yeah, remember the guy I told you about five years ago in 99 that I got a shouting match with him? He just gave the Dem keynote speech and mm. he will be the president one day. Yeah. Uh, and uh, so but he sold America on a false bill of goods. He was a radical cultural Marxist who he was telling me in 99 he believed in 80 percent confiscatory tax rates and that America is an irredeemably racist nation. Wow. But. Wow. We're going to have to rejigger it through the tax code because that's the poli the technocratic policy we have at our fingertips. Uh, and I argued with him. I'm a Chicago economics guy, Milton Friedman School. So I got into it with him. He was pretty. I think I told him. I taught him what the Laffer curve was. I mentioned what the Laffer curve was. I've said I've since become friends with Art Laffer, and I, I wrote this up for him. He says he's going to include it in his next book. This sort of like, uh, <laughs> anecdote. Uh, but the but so Obama comes in and he wholesale tries to remake the American uh, economy, healthcare, the stimulus. Uh, green stuff. Stephen Chu, his first EPA uh, uh, administrator, as head of the EPA, was in his in his hearing uh, for confirmation. Said we want to drive gas up to ten to fifteen bucks a gallon to get people out of cars, get them on yeah. buses, and yeah. stimulate the production of, of of greener technology. Well, the technology wasn't there then, and it's twelve years later, eleven years later. It's not really there now. Uh, you know, the market will will order that through uh, spontaneity and innovation better than uh, you know a bunch of bureaucrats. Uh, but America was fed up. 2010, they ushered in this, you know, Tea Party revolution that gave us great guys like uh, uh, Cruz and Paul and uh, and the House Freedom Caucus and, and and Mark Meadows and Jim Jordan and Tim Hulescamp, who went to war with Boehner, is a great friend of mine, uh, Thomas Massey. Uh, so I think we're in that again, because here we have a total remake. What happened in Afghanistan? No American right or left, unless you're a hardcore woke lefty nut job in the ivory tower, wants to see $85 billion of American armaments going into right. the Taliban. We just spent 20 years trying to defeat right. because they're harboring jihado fascism. Nobody thinks building the Taliban's military complex, so that it's the second most powerful military in the world off our stuff, is a good idea. So, you know, there's many examples of this. COVID, obviously, and mandatory vax. That, that's what drove, I think, New Jersey's neck and neck race. The education complex. Look at Youngkin, who's yeah. Youngkin's not really my guy, but it's still interesting when a guy with an R in his name gets uh, yeah. wins in contemporary Virginia. Uh, and so I think we're going to see a giant reactionary pendulum shift in the House. In the Senate, we have one of the toughest Senate maps we've ever had. Uh, you know, every every two years, 33 seats are up, 33 and one off year, 34. Uh, and 
this year it's something like we're on a 19 or 20 against to 13 or so mm. now on the retiring seats i think we'll be fine over the portmans and i think that we may be able to offset a loss with pickups in georgia with herschel walker and maybe burnovich uh or maybe masters in uh in Arizona, but I think Senate's going to be very tough. Yeah. And I do think that we are screwed in Michigan, Wisconsin, Pennsylvania for the better part of the next 10 years off just straight election integrity. Uh, Georgia and Arizona did do some strengthening of their systems, uh, but you know, the full dem executive and judicial complexes of those upper Rust Belt states, Wisconsin, Pennsylvania, uh, and Michigan. I, you know, I love John James. I think he won that Senate seat. I would love to see him run for governor, but unless it is such a blowout, like Youngkin had to have won by 10 points for it to have been neck and neck this way, because there's no way there wasn't, you know, tri-county DC Metro voter yeah, fraud. Right. The same way New Jersey, right. I think Ciotarelli won. Uh, you know, I, I remember I did a lot of work post the election. I was speaking to people, poll poll workers in uh, in uh, in Milwaukee, and you know, how did that Milwaukee County have ten thousand same day walkups? Mm. Well, they didn't. They made yeah. it up. Yeah. Atlanta, we all saw the evidence, overwhelming evidence in Georgia, uh, and what happened with the voter registrations and Stacey Abrams' machine there. But even North Carolina, they tried to steal it. You know, the Trump was up by eight in North Carolina uh, before they fraud curved it, and then all of a sudden he was up by two in one big dump. Now, the reason I don't think it was enough in North Carolina was because those cities where they're starting to build machines are too new. It's not Philly. It's not mm. Pittsburgh. It's not uh, Detroit, Atlanta or, uh, you know, Chicago style, yep. Milwaukee, uh, Vegas, which a Clark County, Harry Reid's machine. Uh, but, you know, in North Carolina, you have Charlotte, you have Greensboro, you have uh, yep. Raleigh and Durham. Yep. They're just not big enough and mature enough that their Dem County machines were able to deliver, but they tried. So I, I do think that in Wisconsin, Pennsylvania, and uh, uh, and uh, and Michigan, we have a very they have to be huge blowouts for us to start taking control of the state. Yeah. Uh, so that does worry me. I'm in I'm in Texas. I'm asking you this because uh, you know I love the, I love the state here in Texas, but can't blame you. It has a, it has a national impact uh, if Texas flips. It won't. Predictions for uh, what's your predictions for Texas? It won't flip. Uh, I think that it's uh, you know first of all when they put up candidates like Beto O'Rourke, uh, <laughs> you know the Beta Beta Cuck O'Rourke. Uh, I mean this guy does not resonate even to like okay obviously the righties he doesn't resonate but even the center he doesn't resonate. I mean he is the same sort of Democrat that the uh, the the upper Midwest Rust Belt has rejected. The Democrat parties left them. And then you look at the uh, the returns uh, on this uh, this this past election cycle. The Hispanic vote is getting more and more red, which is great. One of my best friends is Steve Cortez. I'm introducing him at the New York Young Republicans Gala on Saturday night for an award. I plan to roast the hell out of him. Uh, but he's been because uh, he is your best one of your best friends, so that's good. One of my best friends. So I mean, I got it. And we're on the opposite side of this Ohio race. He's a JD Vance guy. I'm a Josh Mandel guy, so we have some fun with that. Uh, but in fact, I went as him for Halloween, where I just made a T-shirt that says "I love JD Vance." <laughs> Put a sombrero on. Uh, but he was uh, Trump's uh, na national Hispanic uh, leadership uh, uh, committee guy, and he's been writing for for years. Did Prager videos on it. He's been writing real clear about how the Hispanic vote is uh, is moving to the right. That the, the value systems, everything from economics to family values and social policy, mm. matches up a lot better. But the Hispanic vote, uh, and these are legal Hispanic American citizens. Uh, who either came in legally or first or second generation, a lot of them were working class Dems in the same way of the Union Rust Belt Upper Midwest, uh, where it was like FDR, New Deal Dems. Uh, and so they, the Democratic Party's left them as well. They don't believe in intersectionality. 
they believe in hard work and thrift and grit. Uh, and culturally, they're, they're, they're strong about their communities. And look at those border counties like McAllen on east and west. Mm. Uh, they went from like Laredo, which is was dependably one of the most blue voting districts in the entire country, not just Texas, is now purple. And most of the other sort of suburban and rural that were, you know, a mix of purple or even blue are flipping to red. So I think Texas is fine. And as long as, you know, you have some decent governance, I'm not I'm not in love with Abbott's tacking to the center as I lecture all the time where there's no time for squishiness. I look at my friends in the Swedish Democrats who I love. These are some of my closest friends in Europe. They were ascendant over the last couple of years, because if you were Jewish, if you had daughters, you mm. said, I'm voting for the Swedish Dems. I may not tell it to a pollster, but I'm going to vote for them because I know what's happening in Sweden is not tenable. We're losing our culture and there are rape gangs and no-go zones. The media yeah. won't cover it, but I see it with my own eyes. And so the Swedish Dems were actually doing as well as, you know, 30 something percent and might have been able, uh, strong enough to win an election and build the government but they tacked to the center and then they started flagging. So when I see somebody like Abbott tacked to the center or any of our guys tacked to the center, I said, I'm with Bannon on this, throw them out. Let's get somebody who's, you know, really, really tough and who's going to galvanize and put forward our, our issues with strength and, 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 and grit, as opposed to, you know, trying to get yeah. a centrist uh, buy-in. We got some great friends running. Uh, Chad Prather's running. He's a friend of ours. I know Chad. I, I love Chad. Chad's great. Great dude. We're backing. Uh, well, at least I say we. Uh, I, I'm behind Alan West. He's a you know mentor, friend of mine. He's a he's a he's on the board of our foundation. I love Al. I love Colonel West as well. I've known him since he was a member in Florida and when he ran NCPA. He's also getting an award on Saturday night uh, at the New York Young Republicans. I haven't seen him since before his uh, motorcycle accident. So I'm looking forward to seeing him. He's also a great dude. Big yeah. fan of his. So. Yeah. yeah. It's awesome. Matthew, um, man, so much great information. Where can people follow you? Or where's the best place for people to follow you and find your so, writing and the other things you're doing? Yeah, so I do, uh, you know, here and there, you know, writing. I do uh, I do Bannon's War Room a lot. I do, uh, uh, if anybody wants to watch uh, Polish television, we have an English <laughs> language show that I'm on. Uh, it's on YouTube uh, called uh, Rock, Rock Hone, uh, R-I-C-H-O-N, uh, that I'm on Tuesdays and Thursdays talking U.S., Europe, yeah. Poland, uh, the works, uh, do the final segment uh, every uh, twice a week. Uh, my Twitter is at Matthew Tiermond, M-A-T-T-H-E-W-T-Y-R-M-A-N-D. But more important than Twitter now is Getter. And I'm working with these guys. Jason Miller's a close friend, Kaylin Dorr. Uh, so I'm working with Getter, and I'm actually helping them on their international stuff. So I've been, I was with Jason when we got detained in Brazil. I'm the mm. one who set up the uh, meeting with Bolsonaro. I'm super good friends with Eduardo Bolsonaro, who's an absolute mensch. That's awesome. uh, and so I've been all over with Jason in France and Germany and the UK. And Getter is absolutely crushing it. I mean, look, I've also tried to find the alternatives. And all the alternatives up till now have pretty much sucked. They've been poorly designed. They have not had the right capital stack behind them to build the tech the right way, and then to build it with capital behind them. And, and Getter's got great investors who are committed to being the alternative to Twitter. You know, if Twitter's got X billion users, well, Getter, just if it's focused on being the alternative for those who are being silenced or shadow banned, purged, uh, censored in whatever way, you know, we pick up a couple hundred million users and we are a viable force. Right. And I think we are well on the road to it. Look, Eric Zemmer, who's running for president in France, announced yesterday, and Jason and I met with him a, a couple months ago, uh, he's using Getter. And in France, Getter's going straight up because of it, because they know that Twitter is going to put their thumbs on the scales mm. of French and Hungarian elections and Brazilian elections next year and our elections in uh, in November. They're going to they're going to do it. They, they When people tell you who they are, 
believe them right. and they are telling us nonstop who they are so i'm a big fan of getter i got the same handle uh, at matthew tiramond uh and then you know i write sometimes european conservative uh sometimes uh, you guys should have todd wood on uh from creative destruction media he's a good friend of mine he's running a great platform that's that's gaining a ton of traction and he's awesome. just said screw twitter and facebook i'm going just with my own email list and alternative platforms and his subscribership is going straight up so so there is life after the mainstream yeah. uh gatekeepers and arbiters of quote-unquote truth we can yeah. do it ourselves beautiful matthew terman thank you so much really really appreciate it hopefully uh, we can do this again if you have time uh, i'd love to hey. Continue anytime. the conversation. Awesome. Anytime. As you, as you can see, I, I, I'm capable of just winding me up. <laughs> like a I, I, so yesterday I watched an episode of the show you do in Poland, and uh, I was fascinated. The questions, but your response, and the way you were able to take a very simple question and spend, you know, quite a few minutes developing it in a very thoughtful way. I really appreciate that. I appreciate so thank that. you. No, thank you. Yeah. Yes, sir. It's my, it's my only skill. I, mean, I, 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 li I like ice hockey, but now I live in Florida, so that, that skill's going to well, you got, you got a good skill, and uh, man, it's super helpful as well. So thanks a lot, man. I really appreciate it. it. Anytime, anytime. As we were talking to Matthew, I was reminded once again about what a blessing it is to have such incredible guests on this show. Uh, we mentioned that even at the top of the show, but uh, man, what an incredible perspective, both historically, as he mentioned, his uh, lived experience, and uh, just an understanding of an issue that is so difficult for us to get our heads around. Uh, thankful for his perspective and uh, very, very grateful that he spent the time talking with us and breaking this down for us. Definitely need to have Matthew back on. Uh, but populism, uh, this is not about uh, the mob rule. This is not any of those things that we're often told and those ideas that are pushed towards us. Really, populism or the populist movement, both in our country and around the world, is normal people, working class people, people that understand the bottom line to their families and in their communities and financially understanding that they cannot be ruled by a class of people who have no connection to where they live. And it is individuals, it is citizens standing up and saying, we are going to take back the government of the people and for the people. Such a great conversation, and I hope that we'll be able to revisit this. And uh, really, more than anything, I trust that it was helpful to you to navigate this world and this culture that is constantly changing. Thank you for watching, and thank you for listening. Look forward to talking to you next time. Star General Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. And I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.